Hello, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast where we share a little context about this week's scripture as we work our way through the week together, learning and living, and prepare for worship to come together to love God, and then to go and lead our lives as disciples of Jesus. I'm Pastor Melissa, and I'm excited to continue this journey through the Gospel of Luke this fall with you. This week we are on chapter 17, and we are in our Redefine series. And so this Sunday, you'll hear a message that focuses on how Jesus redefines kindness for us in this chapter, although it may not be in a way that you would expect. Now this week, we'll be looking at three parts of this chapter. Um, It's a parable sandwiched between two instructional discourses from Jesus. So if you're following along, you can turn to chapter 17 uh, in the Gospel of Luke, where we will be then jumping around a little bit, but we'll start right at the beginning today with verses 1 through 4. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to trip and fall into sin must happen. But how terrible it is for the person for for the person through whom they happen. It would be better for them to be thrown into a lake with a large stone hung around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to trip and fall into sin. Watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins, warn them to stop. And if they change their hearts and lives, forgive them. Even if someone sins against you seven times in one day and returns to you seven times and says, I am changing my ways, you must forgive that person. Now, we've heard this passage before, these verses before. It's where Jesus seems like he's starting to ask us to do a little bit of math, but this isn't the one where he asks us to multiply, so we're okay there. Um, but there are still some numbers involved there at the end, those sevens. Um, and just as a note, seven, every time you see seven in scripture, um, chances are the uh, author, whoever was writing, wants you to think of wholeness, think of completion. Um, and so seven, uh, uh, forgiving someone seven times means forgiving them completely. Completely. But if we focus on the quantities that he lists here, um, and we'll hear more on not getting too con- caught up in quantifying things later in this chapter as well, we might miss the point that Jesus is trying to make in sharing this. Now, note that unlike many of his sayings in this section of Luke, this particular one happens to be addressed to the disciples specifically. Um, This is not addressed to the Pharisees. Um, We see them come back a little bit later. Um, But it's it's addressed to disciples. So he does expect a certain kind of allegiance and and a certain type of behavior from them. Um, And so he's directing them in their behavior very specifically. There's an element of accountability to him and to one another in this passage. And then also very at the very beginning in, in verse 1, Jesus goes ahead and cuts off any naysayers. Because when he talks about forgiveness and, and all of this and stumbling blocks, this is where we get that um, concept in, in sort of Christianity. Um, uh, he goes ahead and cuts off those naysayers uh, who might say, oh, I just don't find myself in those situations. Because Jesus knows better. Jesus knows that we're all going to find ourselves in compromising situations, either as perpetrator or as victim. And so he starts, um, the writer starts here uh, by putting in Jesus' mouth a double negative. Now, if 
if you remember Dr. Evie taught us back in the Gospel of Mark, multiple negatives in a row when we find those in Scripture, um, or when we find those in the Greek, I should say. Um, whereas double negatives cancel themselves out in English, um, in Greek they actually emphasize. And so this indicates that Jesus wants to be very, very clear, or the writer here wants to be, be show that Jesus is very clear. And the Greek in that first line where he talks about these things must happen is more literally that it's, it's impossible for them not to happen. They can't not happen. So we get that double negative to really, really emphasize that this is for everybody. Everybody needs to be paying attention here. And um, where it talks about these things that cause, cause people to trip and fall, or in some translations it says scandals, um, Jesus is referring here to anything that causes people to turn away from him. Um, and so uh, Jesus wants to include in that a lament. It's not what he wants for his disciples. So, um, you know, woe, woe unto those for whom, um, not, not for whom uh, the, the, the trip occurs, but for those who cause someone to trip. He's giving instructions for the people who are supposed to be representing him in the world, the people who say they are following him, and he's reminding them that they are responsible, not only for themselves and their actions, but they're responsible for how they're going to impact others, that they can have the best of intentions. But if the impact of their actions or the lack thereof pushes someone away who is in the process of seeking out Jesus, that that is a huge issue. In addition, he adds the importance of that same impact and the relationship it represents even within the community of disciples, that they are responsible for holding one another accountable, that they need to call each other out on their sin, but not in a prideful gotcha kind of way, that in calling out, they also have to be ready to be the first to accept repentance and then to offer forgiveness. That in the end, it's not on the penitent person to demonstrate that they are worthy of forgiveness or that their repentance is genuine. It's actually a sign of good discipleship, of deep discipleship, of mature discipleship, to be able to actually follow Jesus' command to forgive anyone who repents. Now, this is going to be a hard one for the cynics among us who see repentance with skepticism all too often. To think of someone coming seven times in the same day and saying, I've changed my ways, starts to get a little hard to, to wrap our minds around and to continue to offer that forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't actually offer the option not to. He gives the instruction as a command in the future tense. You will forgive. So. There in the first four verses, we get this little diatribe on forgiveness um, and to remind us to ensure that we are aware of how our actions are impacting others. Now, let's keep going. We're going to jump ahead to verse 11. So if you're following along, we ended in verse 4. Now we're going to verse uh, 11 in Luke 17. And in verses 11 through 19, we get another parable. We get back to storytelling Jesus. Much more comfortable, right? And this time it's a healing story. So let's read together starting in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, 10 men with skin diseases approached him. Keeping their distance from him, they raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, show us mercy. And when Jesus saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they left, they were cleansed. 
One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, returned and praised God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. And Jesus replied, weren't ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one returned to praise God except this foreigner. And then Jesus said to him, get up and go. Your faith has healed you. There's a feel-good Jesus story, right? The themes here are really clear. Healing and inclusion and gratitude. Now, looking at this story, we, we first look at the location. You know, this whole section of the Gospel of Luke is Jesus' travel narrative, so he's always on the move. And it, it this one is identified in a kind of marginal place. It says it's between Samaria and Galilee. Well, there's actually not anything in between Samaria and Galilee. And so it's more of this idea that it's on the border between the two. But the function of this identification of location uh, gives him proximity to be able to encounter a Samaritan and that the writer of Luke wants to show us that Jesus' message is going beyond Judea's borders. It's a theme that Luke continues in the emphasis on the mission to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. Now, the first part of the story is structured like most of Jesus' healing narratives. The sick come to Jesus, they ask for healing, he heals them, and he sends them on their way. And we see very similar stories in Matthew and Mark and even elsewhere in Luke. That's how healing kind of happens when it comes to Jesus. Um, and these lepers, we, we hear that they are men with skin diseases. And in a lot of our traditional translations, it refers to them as lepers. This is where we get that term from. Um, they, these lepers follow protocol. They stand at a distance. Now, the term leper, um, as we see in, in our CEB translation here, it's a generic term for someone with a skin disease. It's not a specific disease itself. And in this time, anyone in this category would generally have been quarantined from the general public. They were required to live outside of the community. And they had to, then when everybody, when any, anyone approached them, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, to protect them. And the only way they were allowed to return to normal community was to be certified by a priest that they had recovered. And so these men are traveling together um, here again in the margins, and they ask Jesus for mercy. And here we interpret that as healing because they kind of seem to know who they're talking to. And so he does. Jesus heals them without even touching them. And he sends them to the priests so that they can be certified clean and allowed to be reintegrated into their communities. This action would have been monumental in all of their lives. But one in particular notices what has happened. He turns around and he gives thanks and praise to God. It's a moment of worship and Jesus takes notice. Now I, I want to make a note just for myself, often I have this story in my head that this one person turns to thank Jesus. But that's not actually what happens. He turns and he offers praise and worship to God. And then Jesus notices that. Jesus sees him. We might hear some connection from a few weeks ago to our Good Samaritan story where the Samaritan saw the man on the side of the road differently than the other passersby. But we see here in this Samaritan leper um, true gratitude 
And it's an example for us that when we encounter something important, that we encounter, when we encounter something this uh, significant in our experience of God, that our first response is to turn to God in thanksgiving. Turning around that action is important here. It's the, the appropriate response to recognizing God's work in our lives. And it's not accidental that that is, is part of the action we hear this particular leper um, the, doing, that we, we see him actually physically turn around. And we see in that moment that this man has been healed fully, not just in his body, but also in his spirit. His physical healing allowed for his reconciliation with people, his reintegration into the community. But his response, his response allowed him to be reconciled with God. This is not a story actually to say that this leper was any better or actually even any more grateful than the other lepers. That's that's something that we want to be careful not to fall into that trap. This isn't a comparison story. This is an example story. It's a story that is meant to teach us what our proper response to God's work in our lives should be. Worship, gratitude, thankfulness. And Jesus responds to him when he sees what this man has done. He tells him that his faith has saved him. Not the faith because he asked the right person for help, but faith that because when he got the help that he asked for, he offered praise to God. All the lepers got what they asked for, but this one got even more than he asked for, more than he could imagine. Now, Much more could be said about this particular story. But we have one more passage to tackle this week, and it's a little less warm and fuzzy. Um, Less warm and fuzzy even than a story about lepers. So we're going to move ahead to the next verse, verse 20, and follow along to the end of the chapter and see how Jesus closes all of this out. It says, Pharisees asked Jesus when God's kingdom was coming. He replied, God's kingdom isn't coming with signs that are easily noticed, nor will people say, look, here it is, or there it is. Don't you see? God's kingdom is already among you. Then Jesus said to the disciples, the time will come when you will long to see one of the days of the human one, and you won't see it. People will say to you, look there or look here. Don't leave or go chasing after them. The human one will appear on his day in the same way that a flash of lightning lights up the sky from one end to the other. However, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be during the days of the human one. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, in the days of Lot, people were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. That's the way it will be on the day the human one is revealed. On that day, those on the roof whose possessions are in the house shouldn't come down to grab them. Likewise, those in the field shouldn't turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to preserve their life will lose it but whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in the same bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. 
And the disciples asked, Where, Lord? And Jesus said, The vultures gather wherever there's a dead body. Okay. Um, I want to go back to the lepers. I don't know about you. This is intense. We went from forgive each other to healing of a leper and gratitude and worship to a whole other picture. (laughs) And I actually want to start this conversation about this particular passage with a quote from one of our commentaries about this section of scripture. It says, as a potential text for preaching or personal reflection, this passage starts with two strikes against it. One, the notion that the kingdom is both present and future is difficult to grasp. And two, the gospel's words about the future have been so abused and corrupted by persons who claim to know that the end is coming in our time that they have been all but abandoned by many believers. You know, I I know that some of you probably cringed at some of the language in that section. There are pieces of this text that have been used or interpreted in ways that have been harmful or fear-mongering or oppressive, maybe to you and certainly to people that you know. And so I want to say that we are not going to abandon it. We we don't abandon pieces of scripture. We wrestle with them um, and we ask questions of them and, and we dig deeper with them. Um, And so I want to say we are going to walk through it together um, and take a broader view of it as we do. Um, So stick with me here. Um, If if that brought up some, some, uh, some past trauma, just stick with us. Let's see where we end up. We get two big themes in this section that were already kind of addressed. One is in those first two verses, the importance of the idea that the kingdom is both now and to come. We often call that the already and the not yet. And the second comes in the rest of the section. And what I want you to hear in the rest of that section is Jesus' call for urgency in discipleship. Now, first, we see the question of the Pharisees around the time of the kingdom's arrival. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that they are asking the wrong question. He offers the confusing, now though theologically rich statement that we we do, uh, we, we play with of that already and not yet, that the kingdom is here and now and it is also to come. But the point is that the, the question was the wrong question. Um, and so I'm just going to tell you the kingdom is now and, and later because you've, you've kind of missed the point. And he also tells them when it does come, it's not going to be signified by clear and observable visuals. (laughs) It's not an empirical thing. It's not going to have a PowerPoint attached to it. It's not going to be a neon sign in the sky. The kingdom's arrival is discerned only by faith. But then he moves on from this question, having shown that the preoccupation with the timing of the kingdom is the wrong one to ask. He moves on in verses 22 on um, to a discussion of preparedness for the sudden unpredictable coming of, as this particular translation said, the human one. Yours might say the son of man. Not to be confused with the coming of the kingdom, which he has already stated is already here. Coming of the kingdom and the coming of the son of man or the human one, two different things. And he warns of false reports of this event. He warns that people are going to make a deal out of this that is not what it's about. He warns especially around those who would create apocalyptic hysteria about it. The end is near, that kind of thing. In this passage, he actually says, beware of. 
So if, if you've heard those statements, that Jesus is already telling us, uh, put, prick your ears up for that one because um, that's, that's, not quite, that's not quite what I'm talking about. Those are not the people who are going to have it right in this moment. Don't get distracted by fear mongers. Don't get distracted by people trying to work you up about when the end is or when I am going to return. When this happens, you are going to know. And you're going to know because it's going to be as obvious as a flash of lightning that fills the whole sky. It doesn't happen in one place. Everyone is going to be able to see it. But before that can happen, there's going to be suffering. Luke wants to be very clear that he is talking about the person we are about to see put on a cross. That is who this son of man, this human one is. And Jesus, in this moment, appeals to stories that these hearers would have known, the stories of Noah and the stories of Lot. There's an element of judgment among this urgency. But the clear message in all of it is that there is no room for dilly-dallying. There is a need for a decisive commitment, a decisive action from anyone who calls themselves a disciple. Jesus warns, like he has in previous parables, about seeking security above all else, especially in material possessions or wealth. That those who spend their lives seeking security are destined to lose them. But those who are willing to make that decisive choice to give their lives to God's purpose and use will save their lives, their whole lives. And at the end, we get a cryptic response from Jesus when he is asked a question he has already answered. But where? Where is this going to happen? And he gives a response that the vultures will make it clear where. (laughs) Similar to the response he gave earlier of the lightning flash. When it happens, you'll know. Decisive action. Making a choice of who you are following. This is what is important. After all, why would you wait? What is there to wait for? There is no more security ahead for you if you do. Don't wait for signs. Don't wait for anything. Jesus is the sign. Jesus gives this same directive he gave to the disciples from the very beginning. It is urgent. Drop your nets now and follow me now. Jesus' refusal to provide us with signs of the end times means that we have no way of gaining the security and the control over that moment that we probably want as humans. We like predictability. And Jesus here tells us that there's a desire for signs, but it's translated into a question of trust. The gospel calls us to trust in God's grace to sustain us both now and in the times to come. And by refusing to offer a timetable for that, Jesus turned the disciples' attention away from what will or could happen. He actually is trying to get the disciples to stop thinking about this then, this not yet, this end times concept. He's trying to turn their attention to what's in front of them. What are the tasks around you that need to be done? What does the world need now? Because this is the kingdom already. And in all of these stories, Jesus might be calling us to do that as well. Now, each of these passages, they carry different weight. (laughs) They offer completely different images, but there's a key question in all of them. What are you going to do? 
Because when it comes to discipleship, a response is required. It looks like action. It looks like choice. It looks like gratitude. Are you so afraid of what might happen, so afraid of being hurt again, so afraid and insecure that you're not willing to offer gratitude and forgiveness and allegiance to Jesus? Are you so focused on what you might miss out on now that you put off giving your whole life to Jesus? Haven't you noticed what Jesus has already done for you? Doesn't that prompt a response? (laughs) What we do matters. How we respond matters. How seriously we take our discipleship matters, not just for us as individuals, but for those around us. How we choose to place stumbling blocks in front of others with our actions. How we choose to ask for and offer forgiveness. How we hold one another accountable. How we respond in faith to God's work around us. And it all matters now. While those last verses have been used to offer a harmful idea of urgency, I hope that we can still hear the urgency in them, that our discipleship matters because we are in the midst of a world that needs disciples desperately. Now. Not then, not later, but now. We need people who remove barriers. We need people who offer grace and forgiveness. We need people who show gratitude, people who seek to heal communities and nations. So what are you going to do?